to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop has much to talk about, including the recent historic ordination to the diaconate, the regional Encuentro gathering, the U.S. Bishops' meeting, and Religious Freedom Week. Then he answers questions submitted by Fort Wayne Junior High students. If you would like Bishop to answer a question on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we've got a lot to talk about today. And uh, welcome back from the USCCB's meetings as well. Thank you. And also, big weekend, just celebrated ordination to the diaconate of our Spanish-speaking deacons. Yeah, on Saturday, last Saturday at St. Matthew's Cathedral, uh, what a joy it was and really a historic day for our diocese, the first ordination celebrated in Spanish in our history, and also the, our first Hispanic deacons, 11 men, fine, fine young men who uh, have worked so hard in their formation and education the past four and a half years. and. Um, yeah, I had such joy ordaining them and seeing their wives and their children and so many parishioners from parishes throughout our diocese. And they're real excited about uh, about their new ministry. I think it will bear a lot of good fruit. I uh, just want to send my, my congratulations again to our new deacons, and I look forward to seeing them in the parishes as they get to work. Is this something that other dioceses are doing as well, or is this kind of unique in our diocese to have a Hispanic diaconate program? It's pretty unique. I mean, there's a few others that have programs in Spanish. That's not easy to do, to find the professors, et cetera. But we were really blessed because there are a number of the theology professors at Notre Dame who are bilingual. Mm-hmm. And um, special thanks to Tim Madavina. Tim is the chair of the theology department at uh, Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And he was very uh, 
instrumental in helping us get this off the ground and get get good professors. Also, our own Deacon Stan Lemieux was the director of the formation program. He worked so hard, I mean, more than four and a half years, really five years since we began accepting applications. And, and Deacon Stan worked tirelessly. And even though he himself didn't know Spanish, I think he learned Spanish in the past four and a half years. Yeah. And, uh, and really, it's great to see the, the I'd call it the fraternal spirit uh, among the men and uh, how they really grew into their own community. Um, and again, their wives were an integral part. It really was beautiful as they grew in their knowledge of the faith and learned the skills for preaching and doing other diaconal ministry. They'll be a great help to our priests. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they'll touch many, many people. So yeah, it was... Um, it gave me great joy, and I think it's a cause for thanksgiving to God for this vocation. Yeah. I know sometimes with our deacons, they'll work full-time for the church, and sometimes they'll work out in the world in the secular businesses and things, and the church is kind of something that they do on the side. Right. Do you know what the the makeup of the Hispanic deacons will be as far as being working full-time full yeah, for the I church? Yeah, I mean, 10 out of 11 have other jobs. Okay. Um, but one, uh, Fred Everett, actually, sure. and, and Fred, by the way, is uh, of Cuban descent uh -huh. and is fluent in Spanish. He, of course, is already employed by the diocese as our secretary for evangelization and, and discipleship. And uh, I've assigned Fred to uh, St. Matthew Cathedral in South Bend. I think he'll be a great help being bilingual because there are also many Hispanic parishioners at, at St. Matt's. Kind of on a related note, back in June was the regional Encuentro, and then the, is it national or international? Is national. Coming up, okay. It's coming up in September. Can you explain what the Encuentro is? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a great event for um, pretty much for Hispanic ministry in our country. The last Encuentro, the fourth Encuentro, I remember as a young priest, was in 1985, and the results of that were amazing. As the church's ministry with our Latino brothers and sisters grew with all the goals and objectives that came from the, that fourth Encuentro. So the fifth Encuentro, you know, many, here we are many years later in 2018, and mm -hmm. this gathering of leaders in Hispanic ministry to, to plan for the future, to look at contemporary challenges. So there were parish Encuentros, which we had, as you know, and we had our own diocesan Encuentro. The most recent was the regional Encuentro, so that was representatives from dioceses throughout Region 7 of the USCCB. That's um, dioceses in the states of Illinois, Wisconsin, and Indiana. And we gathered at Notre Dame, and uh, I, I celebrated the opening Mass, and I really enjoyed it. We did had discussions in small groups, large groups. I connected in small group discussions with the young adults. Most of my participation was in the looking at the situation and listening to young adult Hispanics, their experience of the church, and also their ideas, and especially the needs of young adults today and how they can help in the ministry of the church. Hmm. That was really neat. I, I, I certainly enjoyed that. I learned a lot. Um, and now I look forward to the National Encuentro in September in Texas, where we'll have representatives from all the dioceses and regions of the United States. It should be, what would I call it, an event that will hopefully spur us 
on in our efforts of evangelization and and catechesis and youth and young adult ministry, vocations, Catholic schools, all the different topics that um, are important in in this area. I guess maybe we should back up a little bit and explain what the translation would be for the word encuentro encounter and, and what encounter. It, what the goals are of the the event. Yeah, I think uh, most Catholics are probably familiar with the encuentro since they've been such an important part of our our history. It's kind of like a gathering or of of leaders that reflects on the state of the church. Um, in this case, the state of Hispanic communities and in the church in the United States. We look at problems and challenges, mm-hmm. and then we search for solutions, ways to move forward that we can better minister to and minister with our Hispanic brothers and sisters, which make up approaching in years to come half of the U.S. Catholic population. In our diocese right now, about a third of our Catholics are Hispanic. Okay. So it is a significant number. Mm-hmm. And that number rises when you look at the age because the younger, the percentage of Hispanics who are children, teenagers, and young adults are, are higher than that. Okay. And I see it certainly when I celebrate confirmations. So the Encuentros have that goal is, is really the not only planning, but also moving forward with new ideas and how to really accomplish the mission that Christ has given to his church, especially the mission of evangelization. And all of this is kind of happening in the regional meeting in June and the upcoming meeting in September. Kind of in between here, we're stuck right now in this situation where there's a lot of talk about immigration and our borders and families being separated. I know there's been several different bishops and cardinals speaking out on this topic. What are your thoughts with what's going on on the borders? Well, yes. I mean, that's actually an important area in the Encuentro discussions as well, because we have undocumented immigrants. We have problems of separation of families, et cetera. But this was a major topic in our recent meeting of the U.S. bishops in June down in Florida. I would say that the the anti-immigrant sentiment has grown in our country, and that's a matter of grave concern to me and my brother bishops. The other issue, I mean, we've been calling for comprehensive immigration reform for, for decades, and now we've kind of reached a crisis point, I would mm-hmm. say. So there needs to be congressional action. Some of recent developments that are very disturbing, and it's been a lot in the news, and of course the Catholic bishops of the country unanimously believe that it's immoral to separate children from their parents, um, mm-hmm. which has happened. and. So I've made a statement on that. I certainly agree with my brother bishops that that's no solution to separate children from their parents. It can cause trauma, uh, harm to the children. It's not a solution. Refugee children belong to their parents. They don't belong to the government or other institutions. The other disturbing thing, recent development, is a lot of the immigrants who come are seeking asylum. And two reasons that the U.S. has granted asylum in the past have been because of domestic violence. And let's say a woman with her children or child or children is escaping domestic violence. 
or the escape of gang violence. Mm. Um, I've met many young people who've come to the United States, some illegally, but to escape gang violence because they're threatened, their lives are threatened sure. if they don't participate with the drug cartels or gang activity. So, so they try to get into the United States. And, and in the past, you know, that's been a criterion that, yes, we have granted asylum for those serious reasons. It's a type of persecution. Mm-hmm. That's part of our nation's heritage, and it's very beautiful. It shows our compassion for those whose lives are at risk. It shows our compassion for the vulnerable. Well, the attorney general, as you know, weeks ago, has said we'll we'll no longer consider those as reasons for granting asylum. Right. And, you know, I just, my heart just sank. I thought, so yeah, we just leave them to languish in their own countries and to live in, in fear. And I just think we're a better nation than that. So, yeah, these are disturbing developments, and, mm-hmm. and really my heart goes out to, to the people affected by this. We should be in, in solidarity with these, our brothers and sisters. So many of them are Catholic, although just whatever religion, we'd be in solidarity. Sure. Um, but I think of the 2,000 children who, in the last month or two, have been separated from their parents at the U.S. border. That is just, um, you know, I think unconscionable. And I've seen a lot of people speaking out against this, sharing on social media, different things. What else can we do? How can we as individuals and we as a church help and maybe affect change? Yeah, I mean, we have to be involved in the political process. Mm -hmm. We have to put pressure on those who represent us in government on the federal level, especially our congressmen, our senators, let our voices be heard. This injustice needs to stop. And um, we live in a, a, a country, a democratic system, and that's the best way to affect change, I think. Of course, the church is also involved down there in those places where there are these detention centers and a lot of social services uh, by our Catholic Charities organizations and dioceses down there trying to help. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's another thing. We can provide financial support. But I think really the most important thing is letting our voices be heard with our elected representatives. Sure. Well, and speaking of getting involved with the, the legal system and legislation, and we're halfway through Religious Freedom Week which began Friday, June 22nd, which is the Feast of St. Thomas More and John Fisher. It ends Friday, June 29th, which is the Solemnity of Saints Peter and Paul. Can you talk a little bit about what we remember or pray for during this week? Well, as you know, it used to be the fortnight for freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, We've shortened it a bit to make it a week. It's simpler, really, than a whole fortnight. And it's really a, um, during the course of the week, we try to bring public awareness uh-huh. to this issue, this very important issue of religious liberty, to bring attention to it. It's through prayer, education, and public action during Religious Freedom Week that we promote the importance of preserving this essential right of religious freedom, not only for now, but for the future, for Catholics and people of all faith. This is something that we believe is rooted in the dignity of the human person and certainly from the from the beginning of our nation's history something that we've cherished the freedom of people of faith to live out their faith 
The theme for Religious Freedom Week this week, this year, is serving others in God's love. Mm-hmm. Serving others in God's love. In other words, we need to have the freedom, the space, to continue to serve in areas like education, adoption, foster care, health care, migration and refugee services, all these different areas where the church is fulfilling its mission, is carrying out its mission in society. It's in those areas that our freedom to do so has been threatened. That's why we need to really be strong in this area. A particular area of concern, for example, is our child welfare service providers, including our foster care that's done or adoption services by Catholic Charities. I mean, some of these services have had to shut down in places where, like in Illinois, Massachusetts, California, Washington, D.C., the church doesn't do that anymore because of requirements that we can't abide by that um, violate our, our religious freedom, especially our teaching on marriage or even our teaching on abortion. You know, we've been very involved in our refugee and migrant services to resettle refugees, for example. Well, there was a, an effort to force us to provide services or uh, refer for abortions mm-hmm. for those who we take care of. Well, we will not do that. Right. We should be able, and, and because of our unwillingness to cooperate with abortion, we've been denied the opportunity to provide that services, I believe, in California. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of things. I mean, medical area. You know, we have that nurse. It was a famous case in New York. Kathy DiCarlo was for, forced to participate in abortions mm-hmm. to vi- violate her conscience. It's really unthinkable that that would be something that would be required of someone in their healthcare profession. So we will not do abortions in our Catholic hospitals. We won't participate them in them in any way, but also people of conscience, Catholic medical professionals, for example, this nurse in New York, should not be forced to participate in destroying innocent human life. That's why we were pushing very hard for conscience protection in Congress. That failed a few months ago. But we need conscience protection legislation. So there's a lot of issues around this topic of religious freedom. During this Religious Freedom Week, we have some great resources on our website, the USCCB website. I really like the... uh, these one-page things for each day of Religious Freedom Week. It's organized as pray, reflect, and act. And I really like that because prayer always comes first, Mm -hmm. but then to reflect on a particular aspect of the issue Mm -hmm. each day and then suggestions for action. These materials can help people to learn more about religious liberty from a Catholic perspective and to pray about particular issues and then give them some tools to act on what they learn, whether it's finding ways for the parish to serve their community or perhaps calling a member of Congress to promote legislation that supports religious liberty. I really do encourage people, uh, as I've already, we've sent materials to all our parishes to keep this 
issue alive. Uh, we need to have the freedom, as the theme of this year's week says, of serving others in God's love. All right, we will continue this conversation whenever we come back, and then also we have some questions from middle school students. You can submit your questions by calling or texting the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we've got more from Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We're going to continue our discussion on religious freedom. Bishop, you were talking about several of the things that are impeding religious freedom. Any victories that we've seen lately in this area? There have been some. I mean, of course, the most famous would be the Supreme Court ruling in favor of the baker in -hmm. the same-sex wedding cake case. It was a 7-2 decision back in early June, and the Supreme Court sided with the baker in Colorado. The majority... Uh, It was Justice Anthony Kennedy, the same justice who wrote the decision that legalized same-sex marriage, who wrote for the majority in this case. And Hmm. and he said that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had violated the Constitution's protection of religious freedom in its ruling against the baker. As you know, the baker refused to make a wedding cake for the same-sex couple based on the fact that he you know, in doing the artistic part of it, he would be depicting things that in his conscience he couldn't support. Mm-hmm. Really, his deep and sincere religious beliefs were not respected. It wasn't a, a thing where he's denying all goods and services. It's, it's the fact that he was being required to put a message on the cake that wasn't consistent with his religious beliefs. So it was, it was really a rather narrow, I would say, when we look at that court opinion, it had a, a narrow or a, a limited right. scope. So although it can be spoken of as a victory for religious liberty, I don't think we should think of that as, as a total. It does show that people of faith shouldn't suffer discrimination mm-hmm. because of their religious beliefs, that those beliefs should be respected. You know, if we're talking about a, a really pluralistic society, there needs to be tolerance for those, uh, for people with different viewpoints um, to be free to live out those beliefs. And sometimes those beliefs are unpopular, mm-hmm. but still that's part of um, our American tradition. And clearly, and I think this came out in the, in the testimony during the case before the Supreme Court, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, they didn't... Um, have religious neutrality, which mm-hmm. is what the Constitution requires. Their animus against this baker was so evident that, you know, it was even noted by Supreme Court justices who favor same-sex marriage. Right. But they felt, like Justice Kennedy, that, you know, if someone has religious objections or philosophical objections to gay marriage, there should be protection for them of their views. In other words, they should all be treated equally. You know, it'd be interesting to have it on your show uh, an attorney, a constitutional law attorney who can explain this better than I can, but those are the basics. Yeah, definitely. Well, maybe briefly, it might be worth mentioning the saints that bookend Religious Freedom Week, St. Thomas More, St. John Fisher, St. Peter, St. Paul. Could you 
mention a little bit how they're connected to religious freedom? Well, I think it's very clear in the case of Saints Thomas More and, and John Fisher, they were martyred for standing up for the sanctity of marriage mm-hmm. and the freedom of the church. They would not take the oath of supremacy that was being required. In other words, that people had to recognize the king as the head of the church uh-huh. in England. Clearly, they died for this cause, the rights of conscience. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at the other saints during the week, certainly Saints Peter and Paul, uh, I mean, less, I mean, they were obviously murdered for being Christian. Yeah. Um, St. John the Baptist, we celebrate his birth. We can think of his martyrdom also at the hands of an evil king because of his, his preaching. So anyhow, it's, um, it's a week for us to really offer up our prayers for this, all those who are persecuted. And, you know, it's not just in our own country. When we want to talk about persecution, we could speak of it as a soft persecution mm. in the U.S., but... Let's not forget Christians around the world who are suffering hard persecution. In other words, those who are even imprisoned or put to death because of their faith. We think of especially Christians in the Middle East, but also elsewhere, some who are tortured for their faith in Christ. Um, and there's a lot of of countries where Christians are persecuted. And, and I think during Religious Freedom Week, it, we don't just focus on religious freedom in the United States, but also uh, around the world. Sure. Any other highlights from the USCCB General Assembly? Well, yeah. I mean, that was um, there were a lot of uh, issues that we dealt with. We had votes on various important things. One that I was involved in because I'm the chair-elect of the Committee on Doctrine is we had a revision of part of the bishop's document, the ethical and religious directives for Catholic health care services. So in part six of that document, very important because our Catholic hospitals and health care facilities have to follow these ethical directives. Part six has to do with a phenomenon that's been growing, uh, and that is when Catholic health care institutions enter into partnerships with other healthcare uh, groups. We have to make sure that we preserve our Catholic identity, that we don't cooperate when there's a partnership in things that are against our faith. Mm -hmm. So we brought more clarity to, you know, in the role of the bishop in approving such collaborative relationships. So that was the part that was revised. And that that passed by an overwhelming vote of the Mm -hmm. bishops. We also voted on some changes in language in the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People. These are the first uh, changes in the Charter since 2011 to try to even make it it stronger. That was passed. We want to always be vigilant about protecting our young people from, from sexual abuse. So that passed, and we also had a report from the chairman of the National Review Board who cautioned the bishops to not become complacent in carrying out the requirements of the charter. Hmm. I think that's an important reminder. We cannot waver in our commitment to protect minors and and also vulnerable adults uh, from sexual abuse. We also accepted a new document, which has to do with how we, the Church of the United States, addresses the pastoral needs of our Asian and Pacific Island Catholics. Hmm. Uh, we talked earlier about our Hispanic Catholics, 
But really, the fastest growing segment of our Catholic population in the United States right now are the Asians and Pacific mm. Islanders. So this is a statement about this fast and growing minority community and the importance of, of their presence here in the church and our pastoral outreach to those who come from Asia and Pacific Islands. So I think that's a very good document to read. We also had a, a rather lengthy discussion on our document, Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship, hmm. which gives material for encouraging our people to be faithful citizens, to highlight issues of particular importance to the church, the protection of the life and dignity of the human person, etc. And it's a good guide encouraging people to, to exercise their right to vote and to vote according to their consciences. Traditionally, it's released about a year before the presidential election every four years. We haven't had big revisions to it. There's been some revisions through the years. The big debate was whether we should just scrap it all together because of new things happening and, and have a new document. But that was voted down, that we think the document as it is, is very good. However, there are new issues that have arisen, so we approved the producing of some new materials to go along with it. Okay. In other words, not replace it, but that we would have also better, you know, maybe some video materials. And a lot of people these days don't read lengthy documents. So we want to have shorter things that could help highlight some important issues today. Mm -hmm. um, and to maybe have better use of things that are video, things that could be communicated via social media. So hopefully that will be successful. We also received an update on a pastoral letter that's being worked on by our ad hoc committee on racism. Hmm. It will be a pastoral letter on racism. There have been various drafts and a lot of suggestions. So when we have a pastoral letter, it takes a long time, it seems, because there's a lot of input, then there's revisions, then there's more input. So it'll probably be voted on the final document in November. At this point, I think there's a lot of support. We feel it's a very important issue in our country today. We need to be very clear on the about the sin of racism and uh, look at some of the contemporary concerns affecting our African-American community in particular, but also Native Americans and uh, Hispanics, etc. We did have a, a little bit of discussion on the religious liberty things also uh -huh. that, I, that I've already mentioned. And there were other items, but I think maybe those are the principal things that we dealt with this week. All right, great. This, that week. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got a lot of questions coming up. We had them submitted by junior high students, and we'll see how many we're able to get to today. Coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman. Asking the questions submitted by middle school students over at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton in Fort Wayne. Just uh, they collected a bunch of questions. And so we don't know exactly who submitted which question. So we can't say names here, but uh, wow. uh, anonymously submitted by middle school students, I guess. That's great. So I didn't know you were doing this. Yeah, we'll see how many. Well, they actually just offered them to us. And they oh, must, really? okay. must listen to the show and said, hey, let's grab okay. a bunch of questions. Good. So if anybody else wants to do this, feel free to do it with your youth group or That's your good. Also, because a, a lot of times the questions we get are from adults. It's nice to hear what our children have on their minds. Yeah. All right, our first question is, what is heaven like? 
Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I think we have to ask one of the saints that question. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I would answer that. Yeah, it makes me think of St. Paul. He said um, that famous line, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor the hmm. heart of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Mm-hmm. So we only have certain glimpses of what heaven is like. I would say it, it's perfect joy, perfect hmm. peace in the presence of God I, and in the company of Mary and all the saints in heaven. It's a, it's a joy that goes beyond the greatest happiness that we have experienced on earth. There are images of heaven in the scriptures, but there are more images, that, you know, like a, that it's like a great wedding feast, mm-hmm. you know, a banquet. But it really is beyond our, our human experience. I think we have, uh, when we think of the most profound experiences of love in our life, of joy in our life, of peace in our life, we could just say, well, multiply that. Yeah. And that's what heaven's like. All right. Our next question is, is the church against homosexuals? No, no. It would be a terrible sin to be against people because of their sexual inclinations. We must love everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that includes those with, uh, with homosexual inclinations. They are God's children. They are our brothers and sisters. And um, we must love them. We must love everyone. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus teaches us. All right. This next one we did mention in a previous episode back January 10th, but maybe a brief recap. Can people get possessed by unclean spirits when using things such as the Ouija board? Is exorcism real? You know, when we talk about demonic possession, it usually occurs. It's rare, but it usually occurs among those who've dabbled in the occult. I guess you could say that demons are opportunistic. So you don't want to give them an opportunity because it's easier to possess those who are involved in occult practices, those who call on demons, those who are engaged in, in satanic uh, rituals, um, voodoo, divination, palm readers, Ouija boards would be included. That's why it's really important to, to avoid those things. And there's always some degree of consent seems to be necessary on the part of the possessed person, at least at some time prior to the, the, the possession. So again, possession, demonic possession is rare, so we shouldn't be you know, afraid about it. I'd be misplaced. We trust in God, but we shouldn't be creating what I would call avenues mm. <laughs> for the devil or for demons. Um, that means you should never engage in occult practices. All right. And again, you can check out more on that in the January 10th episode of Truth and Charity. How do we know that our confirmation saint is the right one? Well, you never really know. There's no right one. You know, I think it's good to just maybe choose one who, who you feel a special closeness to a saint whose life you really admire or that you feel is has special meaning for your life. I chose St. John the Apostle, very appropriate for me. I didn't know at the time I was going to become a priest, but he was one of the original priests and um, the beloved disciple. 
So I think to, to read the lives of the saints and see what which one moves you the most or who you feel you could relate to the most, who inspires you in your Christian life, yeah. your journey, the journey of holiness. All right. Well, if you have questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, Bishop will answer more questions from the middle school students right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman. Asking the questions that middle school students over at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton have proposed for Bishop. First question is, how do you open your heart to God's love and grow closer to him? I would say prayer. When I'm in conversation with God, and especially in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, or reflecting on God's word in scripture, that's when I experience God's love where I'm opening myself to deeper friendship with God, with Christ. And I think that's what I would recommend. You know, we have to spend time with our best friend and then we know their love even more deeply. Good. How many dioceses are there in the United States? You know, that's a interesting question. There's, there are 197. Okay but they're not all called dioceses. So uh. let me explain this. As you know, we have both the Roman, the Latin Catholic Church, uh -huh. which of course we're a part of, but then there's the Eastern Catholic Churches. And the Eastern Catholic Churches, they call their dioceses eparchies. So with that, I would say that in the church in the United States, we have 177 Latin right dioceses or archdiocese okay so you could say well what about the other 20 mm -hmm. okay there are 18 eastern catholic eparchies okay so they are for example the ukrainian catholic eparchy uh -huh. actually that's an arch eparchy um there's um the Maronite Catholic eparchy, etc. You say, well, what about the other two? The other two are kind of unusual. We have an archdiocese for the military services, which is serves members of the U.S. Armed Forces. Mm -hmm. And that kind of goes beyond all the dioceses. That includes those who are serving overseas. Mm -hmm. And then the last one would be what's called the personal ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter. That's kind of like a special diocese. We don't call it a diocese. We call it an ordinariate, which serves Catholics who were formerly Anglicans. Hmm. That's why the, you know, I guess I would say t understanding diocese maybe in a broader sense. Yeah. We would say there are 197 in the United States including the Eastern Catholic eparchies. That was a much more interesting answer than I was expecting. <laughs> I hope our middle school students could follow yeah. that. I'm sorry. Yeah. All right. When a diocese is in need of a bishop, how is it decided who will be the next one? How does a bishop get elected? Okay. Well, first of all, the bishop is the Catholic bishops are elected, or I'm sorry, appointed by the Pope. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but there is a whole process. Obviously, the Pope doesn't personally know 
priests all over the world. Or um, So there's a whole process that's kind of directed by the Pope's representative in the United States, kind of like his ambassador. It, we call him the apostolic nuncio to the United States. So in a very secret and confidential process, when their diocese is open and needing a bishop, he will do a, a confidential process where he would consult with bishops in that area, with the priests of that diocese, with leaders in that diocese, etc. So, and he would end up sending like the three top names, choices, to the Congregation for Bishops in Rome, which is an office that advises the Pope about appointment of new bishops. And the uh, so the congregation would either support what the nuncio has recommended or perhaps have other choices that they would recommend. And in the end, it's the Pope's choice. And the Pope could say, well, I don't want to name any of these. Hmm. Go back and get me some more. I mean, but, right. um, but anyhow, that's kind of simplified way of talking about how the process works. All right. Another question from one of our middle school students. If you are a priest, can you adopt a child? You know, all these aren't simple yes or no answers. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I guess the short answer would be it's theoretically possible because there's nothing in canon law that prohibits adoption by priests, but it's very unlikely, very uncommon, because there'd be a number of difficulties. Mm -hmm. First of all, from the moral perspective, the child would be deprived of a, of a motherly figure. Mm -hmm. That's important. Um, the other thing is it would have repercussions on the diocese. There'd be obligations towards the child that would take the priest away from his pastoral duties. So it's not a good idea. Um, it'd, be, it'd be rare. There was a case um, of a priest who was given permission by the Vatican to adopt a child in Chicago back in 1981. And uh, I don't remember what the circumstances were that that permission was given, but it would be very, very unlikely, unusual, and, and uh, not generally a good idea. All right. Another question is, why are there more books in the Catholic Bible than other types of Bibles? Okay. Well, that gets to the whole issue of the deuterocanonical books, which are part of the Old Testament. In the Catholic Bible, the Catholic version of the Bible, we recognize seven books that were part of the official Greek translation of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, and we consider them the inspired word of God. These were seven books written in the, not in Hebrew, like the other books of the Old Testament, they were written in Greek. You might know those seven books, the deuterocanonical books, they are Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Sirach, Baruch, First and Second Maccabees, and Esther. And that's why we have seven more books in the uh, Catholic Bible than you'll find in the Protestant Bible. In some Protestant churches, they will have respect for these seven books, but they wouldn't hold them as being equal to the others. They wouldn't hold them as being inspired by God. But, you know, these deuterocanonical books um, were recognized even back in the fourth century by Catholic synods that took place. They were in these old lists of the canon of scripture back in the early church. 
and uh, councils of the church affirmed in later years that this is the official book list that we believe in these 46 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament. It was really Martin Luther who translated the Bible into German. He didn't believe that those seven books should be held as equal to the other books of the Old Testament. He felt they were useful, they were good for reading, but he didn't believe he would only accept those uh, um, Old Testament books that were originally in Hebrew. Okay, well, we have a lot more questions from our middle school students, but that's all we have time for today. So we'll have to maybe return back to some of these in the future. So thank you for submitting those and feel free to keep submitting them in the future. But could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go, Bishop? Sure, Kyle. And a special blessing to those middle school students who ask such good questions. Yes, thank you. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.